Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to talk about unauthorized change, how to jumpstart transformation when you're not the boss. But before we go there, let's jumpstart a check-in round. You are not the boss of me, and yet we will check (laughs) in. Here's our question of the week. It is, have you ever had a job where your ideas were ignored? And if so, how did you deal with it? Okay, this is an easy one for me because I was known for having the most hourly jobs in high school. <laughs> of any, like I went from, you know, from place to place and I worked in retail and restaurants and even at one point at a hat kiosk in the mall and where I embroidered hats for, you know, people and companies, really serious intellectual work. Um, at every single one of those jobs, I was ignored. I, I had ideas of how to do things better, faster, differently, and I was just that kid who yeah. was not in charge. And I did two things. One, I tended to hack the system. So, like at the hat place, I, you know, secretly like hacked the system so I could do custom logos for people. And when I was alone, I was doing sort of unauthorized stuff. Um, and B, I just job hopped a lot. I was just sort of like, maybe there's something that I can stand more out there. But I lowered my standards quite a bit. So it was. Yeah, it was a journey of uh, trying to find the next best thing. What about you? The answer to this is kind of no. I haven't really had one of those jobs. (laughs) Not because I I haven't had really stupid hourly jobs, but because when I was in those jobs, I just didn't really try to have ideas. So like I remember distinctly as part of my student loan in undergrad, I had to work in like the dining hall basically. And I got paid three ten an hour, but then I had my loan subsidized and everything about the way that that place operated was so stupid. And I just like sat there with my hangover and my baseball hat pulled down over my head and like swiped those fucking cards until like (laughs) one minute before my shift was over. And I was like, peace. And I, it did not even occur to me to like try to express an idea because I knew no one wanted to hear it. And I was just like, let's do the bare minimum and get out of here. And I had that experience at a lot of places. Because the subconscious message of all those places that we worked is like, wom, wom, wom. Exactly. Don't think. Don't like, think. Don't even worry about it. Don't think. Just flip the pancakes yeah. and keep your mouth <laughs> shut, which is precisely what I did. Amazing. So today's topic is going to be unauthorized change. Let's just start by talking about how you see this show up. Give us a little description and grounding for the topic. Yeah, so not unrelated to the check-in round. um, After almost every speech I give, 
somebody stands up and it's either question one, two, or three. And they're like, hey, love what you said. I really want to shake things up. I want to blow up this bureaucracy. But, big but, um, I'm not the boss. Like, I'm not in charge. I don't have a position of power. What can I do? And it's always a tough one because the answer is is pretty long. There's so many different things you can do and think differently and try. Um, but But that question is always, always there. And my sense is that so many people out there are waking up to this stuff, particularly because it's those without a ton of authority who bear the brunt of the stupidity of our bureaucracies and our bad systems, right? They're the ones seeing the customers, seeing the frustration, you know, kind of being met with the letter of the law and and knowing that it's wrong. And yet they don't necessarily have the power to do something about it or they don't think they have the power to do something about it. So I wanted today to kind of delve into answering that question with a little bit more texture. Like, what can you do? What are the options for someone who wants change but doesn't know how to get it? This is a topic that is really near and dear to my heart because it astonishes me to see how many people who are bright and talented and incredibly well compensated work in organizations where they are not asked to give their thoughts, opinions, ideas, innovations. They're not thinking critically, or if they are, they're not sharing those critical thoughts. And there's just like this sort of institutionalized idiocy that prevails (laughs) in large systems. And it's super frustrating. And it's like, ironically, it's frustrating for the leaders who are largely creating or assumed to have created those environments. And it is equally maybe more frustrating for the people living inside of them. And, And so much of it is mythology. And so much of it is based on assumption that I think it's actually one of the easiest things to tackle in transforming an organization or transforming ways of working to just get really clear on what can I do? Like what table is mine to flip? And it's for almost all of us, it's more than we think. That's right. Yeah. There's this weird misconception that we can't do anything, the learned helplessness, because I think people come by it honestly, because they they run into no so many times. And right. it's like you open door A, door B, door C, and the answer is no. You're kind of like, eh, forget about doors D through Z. Forget and so, it. but the reality is we all have a lot of power about how we show up at work. Even, you know, an individual contributor at the bottom of the totem pole has options about how they give and receive feedback and how they communicate and some of the information choices they make. And they have the chance maybe to nudge the way they meet or or make decisions with others. Like there's definitely realms of play there. And then certainly at the team level, if you, you know, are a member of a functional team or you're even the, you know, the manager of a small team, like even though you're in a big system, there's a lot of things that you can choose to play with. Yeah. But I think the point about being told no a handful of times is a good starting point for us. True story, when I worked in investment banking, I once went into my annual performance review with a drawing I had made of a cemetery, and each of the headstones had the name of a project I had had an idea for (laughs) that had not come to fruition. And my boss was like, how was your year? And I was like, here, this is my year. It's a cemetery of dead ideas. That like because of bureaucracy and the ninth level of approval didn't go anywhere. That's how my year was. Uh, <laughs> and it's like I am a person obviously who has ideas and who will also execute on those things. But it's incredibly difficult to keep momentum around things when you feel like your hand is slapped or you feel mired in the 
difficulty and like the sludge that it takes to actually manifest something from your idea to its life in the world. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like how much of this does rest with the leader and how much of it does rest with the individual? Because I think we all bear responsibility for this pervasive dynamic. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and in our episode with David Marquet, he was talking about how if you can't create the space, if you don't step back at all, there is a sort of an insurmountableness to a certain kind of leadership where people are just not going to step up. They're not going to show up if you're filling the space so aggressively. So I do think a lot of this is on the leader. I think the leader, the way they show up dictates how much is is at play, like mm-hmm. how much is, is is on the table. And it might be a little and it might be a lot. But I think the point is there's always something, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you can still choose how you show up, right? Mm -hmm. You can still choose how you interact with the people around you. And so even at a minimum, if you're just like, all right, I have no power at all. Well, you have the power to decide how you're going to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. And you have the the power to decide how you're going to show up to some of these different settings and what questions you're going to ask and what attitudes you're going to bring. So there's always something you can do. But I think the the scope of how much that is, is very much dictated by the environment, to your point. And if you're trying to get things done that require a lot of other people's involvement or approval, it it can be pretty frustrating. Mm -hmm. And two things I didn't know when I was in that situation. One is, I didn't know to start small. So when I wanted to do something because I saw a big problem, I wanted to create a big solution or a big project. And then I immediately got stuck in like the cost and the stakeholders and another PowerPoint deck. And I didn't know that if I just started somewhere and made it work, that I could scale it from there. So that's one thing that I know now that I wish I had known, you know, 15 years ago. The other thing that I've learned since then is how much there is in any team that no one gives a shit about. (laughs) So like there's all of this assumption that like, oh, I can't touch that because this person has an opinion or has ownership. There's so much crap inside of teams that is a mess. That's a mess because no one is stewarding it or paying any attention to it. And if one of those things is a thing that you want to like grab a hold of and run with, it's incredibly easy to do so in a lot of instances. It's the equivalent of someone coming to your house and being like, can I clean your garage? Right. And you're like, uh, Go hell yes, nuts. you can. <laughs> like, have at right. it. And it's true with a lot right. of teams. Like, the, you know, the way they meet, the tool they're using, the process they're using. Like, there's definitely a lot of stuff where people are just like, oh, wait, you want to do work? Yeah. Go ahead. Go right? to town. Right. So I think there's agency to be found within your own day as an individual. And we can talk about what that can look like. And then there's agency to be found within your own team because there's cleaning the garage that nobody cares. And you should just go do that uh, and yeah. find success and satisfaction and fulfillment from actually seeing something get done. The other thing about taking individual action, whether it's to like pick up a piece of work or some change that the team will let you have or just doing your own work is that people do notice, right? Right. So like when you show up differently or when you make a different choice about what to share. So like I could just choose to start being more transparent Mm -hmm. um, or I could choose to work on our, you know, the way we take notes in meetings or something that would like make a difference. People notice and then there's a little bit of like, oh, cool. What's the next thing? Or what else do you want to work on? Or you, you build a little bit of credibility right. when you're moving even pebbles, right? Not even boulders, but just like moving some of the rock around. There's a little bit of street cred that starts to kind of, you know, happen. 
Right. And such a great example of this is in our own system. Uh, One of our colleagues, John, was elected to the scribe role for our operating rhythm this year. And the scribe role is like, it is what it is. And, you know, you need to keep things tidy and take action (laughs) items and whatever. And John was the first person in my time at the ready that was like, I am going to rethink what this looks like. And I'm going to make this like a super valuable role that enables our operating rhythm in a different way. And it is dope as hell. And that's an area where nobody was going to be like, you're scribing wrong. You You should not. You can't do that. (laughs) But like he got elected into the role and rather than be like, I'm the secretary. He was like, this role has an opportunity to be something super valuable. And then he made it super valuable. And to your point, everybody's like, oh, damn, that's like, that looks really good. This is really cool. This is really something that is new for us. And I think there are instances of that all over the place. And this this idea of taking action individually, I think it'll bump up against something I want to talk about later, which is going rogue. But I think the best way to find out where your authority is, is just to test it a little bit, right? So just like start doing stuff, start promoting change, making change, advocating for something. And if you cross a line, people will let you know. And you know where that line is. And then you can either fight that or not. But at least you know, as opposed to living in this kind of, you know, false ambiguity where it's like, I don't really know. So I'm going to assume it's nothing, right? I'm going to assume I can't do anything. And instead say like, I'm going to find out where the edges of the map are. And I'm going to find out by just like very gently testing into those spaces. I want to talk about permission seeking and psychological safety based on what you just said. So I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) You're funny. Um, When you work in a place or in a team where you don't feel a lot of support or you don't feel a lot of psych safety, doing the thing that you're talking about is harder because what happens is you see an opportunity that you want to go after. And rather than asking for forgiveness, which is the counsel we often hear, What you worry about is I'm going to make this effort and then a bunch of people are going to talk shit about me behind my back. And they're not going to tell me that actually I'm creating tension or I'm overstepping or I'm out of bounds. Mm -hmm. What they're going to do instead is sully my reputation in conversation that I'm not part of. If you are in a place like that and you have worries like that, it is probably worth having some conversation, even if it's not to get permission, that's like to declare your intention, to say to the group of people that you are worried about, here's a thing that I think needs fixing. I intend to go after it. Does anybody have any beef with that? And if so, what can I do to get your consent to me doing that? Because what you don't want to do is... Again, set yourself up to be in a situation where the first time out of the gate of seizing your agency, it topples over and then you're like, well, let's not touch that hot stove again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some ways that dovetails to the second kind of bucket of answers that we have for folks about what to do individually, which is how to work with leadership or with power or with authority to get some air cover and get some consent to go do stuff, right? So if you're talking about making intentions known and getting consent, well, the next click up would be like, can I actually just get some buy-in from my leadership to start something, to -hmm. start something uh, crazy that's going on here in the form of change? So I think my first question for you is, what, what do you think most people working for a leader think their psychology is about them starting and provoking change? And what do you think the leader's actual psychology is about 
change and kind of making things different or better? Here, here's what I think, what I think people think about what leaders think. <laughs> I think that a lot of folks have the misconception that leaders don't want something to happen that they're not involved in, that they're not controlling, that they don't have their fingerprints on, or that doesn't get executed the way they would have done it themselves. Right, right. And I think that perception is based on a lot of experience that a lot of us have had. (laughs) So like, we're not all wrong. Like that is true. And good leaders who want scale and want innovation and want empowerment get out of their own way eventually to allow things to happen that don't have their fingerprints on them. I think that most people believe that for good reason. And I think there's this underlying belief that leaders only want things to happen that they ask for. Also very true. Right? That right. like, I, you know, if they haven't asked for it, they must love it the way it is, right? If right. like anything, like everything is the way they want it to be. Right. And that is not the not case. Not true. Like the case <laughs> is that most things are not the way leaders want, want them to be. And there just isn't enough time in the day to like sweat it all and figure out who's going to do what. And there's often not enough resources, et cetera. And often as a leader, you're looking around being like, who cares enough about this that I can delegate to them and get their buy-in and get their energy because I don't just want to give it to someone that doesn't give a shit. So you're also doing a lot of triangulating. Like I know I have a thing on my back burner that I'm trying to find the right person to champion. And if it doesn't like stumble across my desk, it might breathe for six weeks or six months before I get around to it. There's something really counterintuitive to the idea that like going to a system, to a leader and being like, hey, noticed a thing that's broken. And instead of just bitching to you about it, which is what you're used to hearing, I already have a plan. I already have an idea of what we could try. It's safe to try. And I'm going to champion it. And I'm going to I'm going to like capture the data of how it's working and serving or not serving us. That's like a very wholly different approach and very refreshing, I think, not to every leader, because to your point. We've learned our own hard lessons about bad leadership, but to someone that is actively bought into the idea of continuous improvement, somebody coming with attention and something to try is amazing. If you're in the situation where you feel like if it's not the leader's idea, it's not something they want, and maybe where you've tried the loop that you're talking about, where you go, create a proposal, come to the leader, you're like, this is going to be dope, you should let me do it, et cetera, et cetera. If you feel like they're going to be resistant, my shortcut hack is try to pick something that is unlikely to embarrass them. Because most of the (laughs) time when I see leaders lock things down and not allow for experimentation to happen that wasn't their idea, it's because they're worried about perception beyond them or beyond their organization and, and maybe for good reason. So if you want to start to get the flywheel spinning of trying new stuff within your own domain or control, start Mm -hmm. with something that is unlikely to cause institutional embarrassment. And that will probably get you further faster than going after something that is like going to be high stakes for the leader. Plus one to that. And to add a wing to your flywheel the next move you can make is just going to the leader and asking them, what do you think is stopping us from doing the best work of our lives? Have them say the answer, 
go mull on that and come back with a way forward on that. Because every leader has stuff stuck in their head. They're like, this is the problem. This is what's holding us back. And then for you to then go grind on that, maybe it's not the first thing on your list, but if it creates that momentum and builds a little trust and builds a sense of like, we can do this together, then all things are possible. So I really do. I feel like you kind of keep layering on what can I do? What level do I need to operate at to get through to them? You'll find the way. So, Aaron, we have talked a lot about how to make change in a way that has some consent or some protection, how to influence within your situation. But what if none of that's working and you need to go break some rules or break some glass? What does it look like to actually go rogue without putting yourself in serious peril? (laughs) I don't know if you can do it without being in peril, but I have seen countless partners of ours over the years that are inside systems be like, you know what? Fuck it. Like I life's too short. I want to make change happen. I don't want to have to, you know, herd cats and I'm going to go try some stuff. And if it works, then I'll get promoted. And if it doesn't work, I'll go somewhere else. And, and as sort of abrasive and, and, you know, um, perilous as that might be, it actually works pretty well. I mean, in some ways, like having the attitude of I'm confident this is the right thing to do. I'm going to go take action has a weird aura about it where suddenly the thing that felt like it was against the rules or outside the lines or above your pay grade. If you're acting like it isn't, other people start to question whether maybe it's not as well. Right. It's like, well, can can she do that? I don't know. It looks like she really is and and can, you know, and so maybe it's okay. And so, yeah, over the years, I've definitely um, talked to many people that are like, oh, you know, people were skeptical. So I went and found another partner in another part of the company who was willing. And we just spun up a small experiment and we and we basically got it done. And I think the advantage of this approach, which is basically the go find some place to do it and just sort of do it under the radar is that you mm-hmm. get evidence that it's working, right? So when you go do it and then it, and then that unit or that project is super successful, there's a story to tell and there's data to look at and there's people to talk to that lived it. And then the pitch for like, let's do it bigger or let's do it over here or over there is so much better received because now it's not a risk, right? And all the people that had their, you know, shorts in a bunch because they were like, oh my God, it's so scary. They now can look at like, well, it worked in, you know, R&D, so it might work in HR. And so I think that um, the, you know, the risks are higher, but the rewards, I I think, I also think it's worth looking at what the danger really is. Because when you talk to people who are a bit rebellious Mm -hmm. in most systems, what they are hip to that the rest of us are not hip to is like the uh, (laughs) consequences are mostly imagined. Like it's so hard to get fired unless you're like stealing shit in a screwed up bureaucracy. (laughs) Like what are what is really going to happen? Like most of the consequences are in our head or they're social in nature or they feel like reputational or emotional. But like when you take a hard look at it, like you're not you're not going to get fired. Like for anything that feels like common sense and isn't blatantly breaking a policy or stepping over someone else. The reality is that the consequence might be someone going like you're out over your skis or that's not your work or whatever. But like there's the peril is probably not as serious as it is in our minds. 
That's right. And we don't offer legal advice on this show. But if we did, I, w- I would basically be saying like, yeah, don't, you know, things that are true fraud, things that are about. really against the law. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about. We're not even really talking about taking huge strategic or capital risks on behalf of the company. We're literally talking right. about changing the way you work, like the way projects are done, the way decisions are made. And so, yeah, there is some there's some exposure there. But to your point, it's a lot smaller than people think it is. One of the first times you and I went on a work trip together, we were talking about this thing and how we will find people inside systems who are excited to do this work and like, you know, fuck shit up. And then about our own responsibility to those people, if ultimately them being counterculture or them being the instigator does get them fired. And you said to me, which I will never forget, you were like, we should investigate an insurance policy that effectively provides people severance from our clients if they get fired for actually doing transformation work, which like, I feel like you were half joking. But the (laughs) thing is, that is interesting about that is just the idea that like, nobody would ever need it. But to be able to say to someone like, your livelihood would be protected is just, it's an interesting like mental model just to be like, what kind of net would you really need to make your life better? To take that extra step. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I think that's true in all walks of life where you think about places where you take risk, like what, what level of cover do you need to then go do the thing you really know you should do that you really want to do? Because I think when you talk about moving from bureaucracy to more human, more adaptive ways of working, Everybody knows in their gut, in their like deepest, darkest, you know, tossing in bed at night place that it's the right move, right. that it's like that, that it's the truest form of who we are. But there's a lot of what ifs and uh ohs kind of in the way of that. And so I do love that idea of like if we could somehow, you know, cover people on that front so that they could be bolder. I'd be so psyched to do I that because I just get excited when someone's like, damn, the torpedoes like we're going to do it. We're, you know, who cares? And those are always our favorite clients. Like they're always in there somewhere. And I just love that attitude. And you'd think it would, it would map perfectly to privilege and to like, you know, an ability to recover, but often it doesn't. It just maps to like a personality type and someone that's just really bought into this idea that like the consequences aren't that bad and life's too short and this is the right way to do it. Yeah. And I think people who have that values oriented conviction, I am, I have an example of this from when I worked at an investment bank that will seem like so insanely insidious now in hindsight. (laughs) But uh, I worked in an organization that partnered with like a center of excellence kind of enablement team. And we were on Wall Street and they were in Jersey City, which, as you know, is not far away from each other. And we had this incredibly acrimonious relationship as those two archetypes in systems often do. So like we're the tip of the spear and you guys don't really understand what our lives are like. And from your perspective, we're just these like diva-ish pains that are constantly demanding things that are unrealistic. Yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Tale is old as time. We've all been on both sides. Enemies across the river. Enemies across the river. Yeah. And we were going to be going through a very significant like restructuring exercise and we were going to be very reliant on these people. And I said to my team, I think we should go to Jersey city and have lunch and meet these, meet these people, meet our enemies face to face and see how it goes. And I shit you not. My boss was like, is that really necessary? And how much is that going to cost? And do you think that you need to seek approval? And I was just like, you know what? It's my lunch break. I'm going to New Jersey on a ferry 
if anyone would like to join me. And yeah. like one lunch with the enemies across the river changed the dynamic of our partnership for the next five years that I worked there. And it's such a stupid example, but it's so Amazing. easy to get stuck in someone questioning something that basic. Like maybe we should meet these people that we cannot work with and that we're creating a ton of org debt in back and forthing with them, both mostly to like nitpick and prove each other wrong. Maybe we should just like go to the subway in the stupid mall and like eat a sandwich together and see how that goes. And it's really easy to get stopped in your tracks right. on that stuff. But when you do it, when you're like, I remember saying to one of my team members, like, what is she going to like lay across the ramp of the ferry and stop us? Like, probably not. Um, when you do it, <laughs> even if it's something as ridiculously minor as that, it's amazing how much it bolsters your conviction that like doing the thing you know is the right thing actually does make a difference. And like not to be stopped by the stupidity of a system that has lost common sense. And it is deeply stupid that you have to go rogue to have lunch. I mean, bonkers. I got a million <laughs> of them. I got a million of those stories. That was a very, that was a, an important five years in my understanding of what being inside a bureauc bureaucratic system really looks like. So I was thinking about who to talk to about kind of individual agency and change within systems like this and even the idea of going rogue. And what occurred to me is that we should talk to Sarah Devereaux from Google about this one. Um, she's been inside Google for something like 14 years and has told me the wildest stories about making change happen, observing change happening inside that world. So when we get back after the break, we'll be joined by Sarah. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Sarah Devereaux from Google. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, to start with, just get us grounded in your current role there and maybe your your historical roles there. Like what has your Google journey been? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a great question um, with a complicated <laughs> answer. So uh, let's see, I've been at Google for just about 13 and a half years now. Uh, I started out in the sales team, literally answering the phones, thanking you for calling AdWords, um, right. and then moved on to do some training. Um, so worked on product training, technical training, Essentially, I took over all the products that didn't work yet, um, that we had to <laughs> explain to customers, hey, it's going to be amazing as soon as it works. But that's not right now. <laughs> um, so then moved on um, to do certifications, instructional design, uh, and then landed kind of in this weird role where I was uh, alone uh, and figuring out how to scale training uh, to our growing workforce. Right. Um, and that was my G2G, time on G2G. So Googlers to Googlers. Uh, and then uh, moved on to executive development. So been in executive development for about two and a half years. Um, and just recently, I actually took a short-term assignment um, with a group within Google uh, called People Analytics. So these are the folks that brought uh, us things like G Teams, which you may have heard of, uh, talking about mm -hmm. psychological safety. They do our annual survey for employees called Google Geist. Uh, yeah. Right. So just kind of trying to figure out how to make Google work better um, through its people, which has been pretty cool. It's been nice to be in a different part of the company after such a long time in learning and development. Sounds like you've been super bored. Yeah, um, there's nothing to do here at all. <laughs> you and I have talked about this a lot over, over a variety of lunches, but I want to hear from you first about leadership's role in all this. So we talked in the, in the A block about 
how often you know leaders have not authorized change or they're or they're in some way standing in the way of what people want to do what do you think leaders actually care about and why do they resist and how should someone who's you know trying to kind of uh spark change think about uh the leadership psychology yeah yeah i mean it's again a great question i think that (laughs) It's really a lot more complicated, I guess, is the bottom line. And I should Uh probably use the word complex Uh than than most people. I (laughs) may may have done my research. Uh, But yeah, than most people, you know, than most people realize. I think that generally, you know, when leaders are resistant to a great idea, it's not because it's not a great idea or it's not necessarily even something that they disagree with. Usually there's something else happening in the system that's causing them to either be scared of implementing Mm -hmm. something new, um, or it may be that there's actually something that you don't know about that they do Mm -hmm. know about that's making it a true risk. So oftentimes what I, what I share with folks is, you know, kind of try to get inside their head a little bit before you go full on for, you know, the pitch. Right. Understand kind of what their perspective is and where they're coming from so that you can exercise a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of compassion to understand, Okay, where do I go next in trying to nudge this system forward? I'm really curious to hear what some of those conversations look like for you. I was just with a friend the other night who's a therapist, and we were having a really interesting conversation about how fear in organizations is just a direct line to bureaucracy. It's like, I'm afraid, so I have to approve this, you know? <laughs> um, so I feel like your your take on it totally resonates. And when you know that you're dealing with a leader who's in a fear state, how do you start like chipping away at that or finding um, finding the thing about which you can be compassionate? Yeah, I mean, I think it all really comes down to questions. Oftentimes, Mm -hmm. when we are excited about an idea or we're passionate about a new direction forward, we tend to make a lot of assumptions and we start not asking questions that are truly curious. So one of the... One of the people that we work with quite a bit, her name's Jennifer Garvey Berger um, of Cultivating Leadership. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that she talks about that I just love is the three different types of questioning. So listening to win, listening to fix, and listening to learn. And oftentimes when we are at a point where we really care about something, we will ask questions that are disguised as listening to learn, but what they really are is listening to fix or listening to win. We're asking leading questions that are going to help us to get to our desired end state and not necessarily help us to really understand the point of view of the person that we're talking to or get curious about what their experience has been. We run into this all the time (laughs) in facilitating decisioning where people want to sort of ask a question that's really a reaction disguised as a question. Right. Even a question as simple as, well, have you tried delegating in this way is saying, I've done this before. I have a best practice and I'm asking you whether or not you've done it. Yeah. My least favorite (laughs) questions start with, have you thought about? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like, (laughs) all you're saying when you start a question with, have you thought about is like, I know something that I suspect (laughs) you don't know. Let's see. Let's find out. You know? Um, Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like question warfare. So you're assuming that you're right. And so oftentimes to kind of get to the point here is that I will tell people, hey, like, you know, just offering, try assuming that you're wrong. Assume Mm -hmm. that you're coming in with the wrong solution and, Mm -hmm. and start asking questions from a place of curiosity that assumes that what you believe is actually incorrect 
And then you can pivot later in the conversation, but it just kind of helps the questioner to open up their mindset a little bit and not right. come from such a, gra- you know, sort of stubborn almost place. So let's say that you've done that. You've, you've talked to the leader, you have probed and been curious, you've understood where they're coming from. And your determination is that they're actually just avoiding what needs to happen out of fear or out of, you know, a, an aversion to risk. And you do want to go rogue. Um, how, how do you do that? How do you do that in a way that's, that's helpful, that's additive? What, what kinds of uh, guidelines or principles would you offer? I think it's important to first assess how big the risk is and whether or not you're willing to take it on. Is it something that, you know, is going to, you know, negatively impact the PR or financials of the company like externally? I don't know. Maybe think about that a little bit harder and, (laughs) you know, go talk to somebody in a position of authority. Um, But, you know, you don't want to tank the stock price. Um, I think it's just important to understand what kind of risk you're willing to tolerate and whether or not you know, you're willing to go all the way to potentially getting fired over it, you know, or if you want to ask yourself, hey, am I real? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? And am I really going to have some sort of negative consequence if I try this, a real negative consequence, and it doesn't work? And if the answer is no, you know, and I usually ask myself, can I get fired over this? No. Okay, good. You know, that's kind of, you know, step one, filter one. Um, but if the answer is no, then understanding, you know, sort of where you're going to go from there can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of depends on the system that you're in and whether or not you have a good understanding of that system. Oftentimes, what I'll tell people is to try to understand you know, what, where you're operating and the context in which you're operating in order to make a decision about which direction to go. And if you still think that this is the right thing to do and you should be moving forward, then start experimenting. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about at Google is safe to fail experiments. Um, So Mm -hmm. think about where those low risk areas are and how you can start playing with the system and nudging the system um, in a way that that feels like it's safe to fail. Oftentimes people will really blow it out of proportion in terms of what Mm -hmm. the consequences truly are and things that feel there are no fire drills like in tech like there's no there's no buildings on fire we use that word all the time and it's like we're not saving babies we're not (laughs) you know we're not avoiding nuclear holocaust like there's nothing actually happening we're trying to figure out whether or not we can get training out to people in remote offices like that's not that's not a fire it's not life or death so yeah so i think understanding like where you are in the system, how much risk you are willing to tolerate and what the consequences actually are, are a couple of good first steps to determine, do I move forward or not? Because that's the biggest question you're going to ask yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, And so tell us about how this has gone for you. Tell us, uh, you know, some of your greatest hits or your greatest hit of going rogue. Yeah. So I would, I would say, you know, and Aaron and I have talked about this a couple of times before, I would say that the biggest thing, my crowning jewel, I guess, um, <laughs> is, is uh, the program G to G. So Googlers to Googlers. Um, I took over that program in 2011 uh, and it only had about 400 people. It'd been around for about five years. Uh, it'd been running in Europe um, and it really just didn't have a whole lot of traction. And I didn't understand why, you know, because the the program is really a volunteer learning network that helps Googlers to teach each other 
because we have some right. of the mm-hmm. you know best and brightest people in the world. And I can honestly say that our employees are incredible. We have all the institutional knowledge, you know, and external knowledge that we could ever want. Why would people not participate in this program? And we figured out that a lot of it was because the central learning and development team was trying to exercise too much control. And so we wanted to figure out, okay, how are ways that we loosen the reins? How do we get people to really be able to exercise autonomy and be able to take this program in the direction that we know it can go in? And so we started this little idea um, called local learning, uh, because one of the big things that we found was that local offices, so remote offices that had less than a certain number of employees we're not getting, you know, the kind of access to training and development that we believed that all Googlers had a right to. Um, so that was one of our guiding principles was that learning is a right at Google. It is not a privilege. So how do we make sure that learning is a right um, for every person, regardless of where they sit um, and how many people they sit with? So, yeah, we, we you know, brought that to our leadership and we had this beautiful proposal for how to exercise, you know, do some safe to fail experiments and how to do this slowly and figure out if it was the right thing for us. And they told us it was shit. And so mm. we, <laughs> we, we basically were like, really? Like we had one, we had one leader who sat there and looked at the format of one of the slides for 15 minutes, explaining to us how the way that we had put together this one slide no. was really confusing for almost 15 minutes. And it was only a 20 minute conversation. And I'm like, wow, this is an incredible, you know, deflection technique. I'm really impressed right now. I was irritated (laughs) too, but I was just like, this is incredible right now. I was so, that's insane. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, we, we ended up then taking it um, and saying, okay, how do we do this without anybody noticing? And so we started to pick out offices Uh, across the globe. So Buenos Aires at the time was incredibly small. Toronto was really small. Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where I was based at the time, um, small and not something that, you know, people were really paying attention to, Chicago. And we were trying to figure out, okay, maybe we could just do it in these places that nobody cares about and that nobody's watching. And then, you know, we could we could get some data and show them that this is the right way to do this. And we actually ran those experiments for over a year. So The other thing that I always tell people is that if you're going to do this, like patience is really important because you have to give yourself the time to be able to understand the data and be able to, you know, collect enough data to make your case. And now it's a big thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, 500 uh, participants uh, in 2011, we have over 10,000 now. Okay. Um, It's been around, gosh, what is it? 12 years. Um, It's still, it's going in over 120 offices and, you know, our, you know, these, this little local learning experiment um, now provides, you know, training and development to over 15,000 Googlers a year. Uh, We do like, I think it's like 90% of the company goes through a program at least (laughs) once a year that's delivered by a G2G facilitator. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's going great. And a big part of the concern was quality. Like people were really worried about quality assurance and whether these people could actually do it. Quality scores are better than our external vendors. 
it's nice to be right, isn't it? It it you know, it is. I try not to like sit in it, you know, too much and be like, <laughs> God, like I really I'm you guys should just listen to me all the time. Um, but but yeah, no, it's it's nice. And especially when it's something that that shows the ability of people to come together and make a difference. You know, yeah, the and solve the, problems for themselves. Yeah. The power of community and the power of like, if you get something going and you get enough people involved, it's really hard to stop it. Uh, and, you know, basking in the rightness sometimes is really necessary if you're going to be a person who keeps like flipping tables over inside a giant system. So you know, <laughs> don't get out of that bath too quickly. Um, so uh, like, I think we notice probably some patterns in terms of the people in a system who are more likely to go rogue and to, you know, make change in a way that's not particularly supported or authorized uh, as one of those people. What do you see out there? What kind of person does this and just says, like, I'm not going to take it. I want to push the system. Let's do this. I mean, I think at Google in particular, and and I do, you know, some stuff outside of Google as well. Um, so I can talk about that. But I think in Google in particular, what I see are people who really care like people who truly believe that there's a better way to do things and they care about the impact that that has, however small, on the way that they work and on the way that other people work. And they want to do it because it's the right thing to do, not necessarily because it's going to get them some sort of, you know, accolade or it's going to get them rewarded. Right. It's it's really more, I want to do this because it's the right thing to do for my colleagues, my friends. Mm -hmm you know, and, and my company. Um, and in some cases, the world, I mean, we, we serve, you know, billions of users um, with our products. And sometimes, you know, I've heard great stories about engineers who have just decided like, you know, I really think this feature would make a huge difference. And I don't really care, you know, that right. I don't have time for it. I am going to sit down and I'm going to make time on my weekends or my evenings or whenever it is. Um, and I'm going to produce a prototype that leadership is going to have to pay attention to, even though they don't see the value. So I think it's people who are passionate about other people, honestly, like and and helping mm -hmm. others. And it's people who who have kind of that that grit and that desire to do the right thing. It's funny you say that because we often get asked the question when we start these cultural transformations, you know, what what makes a group successful or not successful? And there's a lot of, you know, technical answers you can give. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like whoever sweats it more. Like there are just teams you'll you'll get with a leadership team and they'll just get really into it. And they will do more reading, more trying, more talking. Like they just won't put it down. And it is funny how that at the end of the day, like just caring deeply appears to be a powerful ingredient in all this stuff. And it's in some cases hard to bottle uh, and spread, but it is it is the mystery ingredient. I definitely think that's part of it. But I also would say like the thing that is essential to me, Sarah, about what you said is that you find people or see people who just are unwilling to deviate from common sense. Right. And I find like the change makers in a lot of companies that I've worked with are the people who are just like, I am not going to act like an idiot <laughs> just because it's in the air and because my boss told me to. Like, I know what the right thing is. I feel what the right thing is. Anyone with common sense can see what the right thing is. So I'm just going to do it and ignore the idiocy that surrounds me. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely see that. I think the the one area I'd push back on just a little bit, not on that point, but more so on those people, <laughs> is to make mm. sure that you are not being blind to things right, totally. that in the system that you don't understand and that you haven't taken the time to really dig on. So if you're just ignoring like what's happening, I'll, again, like people generally not a pain in the ass by default. Like what's what's I mean, some people are. I've met many of them, but what, you know, what is happening where somebody can't see that there's a common sense solution sitting yeah. right in front of them? Yeah. I mean, it's the balance of context and intuition. Absolutely. I think it's really important too to not allow that to be the cop out of leadership in these big systems where it's kind of like, oh, you know, sweetie, mm -hmm. you don't see the whole picture like I do. So that's why your idea is wrong. There's a really simple solve for that, folks. It's called total transparency, right? If we all know what's going on and we all have access to all the information, then we don't have to play games of like leaders know things we don't know. Um, obviously, sometimes different roles get different purview and different perspectives and the diversity of a good decision making body is critical to, to managing complexity. But I do also just want to note like, A, don't just think you know, because to your, to your point, Sarah, like you might not, there might be things you're not seeing. And B, if you're someone that is often saying no, and the, and the reason why is you don't have the whole picture, maybe share more of the picture. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And as the person who's trying to get a better sense of the picture, ask. Right. Like, right. I, I think that, you know, oftentimes people think that if leaders aren't sharing something, it's because they don't want to share. Right. They're like twirling their mustache. Major revelation. Leaders are human beings <laughs> and they have all the same insecurities and anxieties and concerns like that, that other human beings have. Right. And so sometimes leaders don't feel permission to be able to proactively share things depending on the system that they're in. But if you ask the right questions and if you get really good, you know, at being able to probe in a way that illuminates, you know, kind of a dark spot um, in the story, leaders will share like if they can, you know, if there's not a legal restriction telling them not to share something um, leader, I, they, it's amazing to me, like how much people will actually tell you if you ask the right questions, you come from a true place of curiosity and compassion. And they know that you're actually concerned about getting the information because you're concerned about doing something that's better for the organization. For sure. I think that's right. And uh, with my own sense of compassion, I'm going to draw things to a close so we can all get back to the many wonderful projects <laughs> that we have to go do, um, including our listeners. So uh, with that said, thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Yeah, this was a great time. Thanks for having me. Rodney, always a pleasure. Happy to be here. And a uh, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good, as he always does. Uh, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to some of the world's biggest brands. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, a review would go a long way to helping us out. And uh, sharing the show with someone is even better than that. So um, please do that if you have a chance this week. We'll see if we can grow this movement. And as for you, uh, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Change something.